This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Kia ora. I'm William Ray and this is a special episode of Our Changing World supported by the Aotearoa New Zealand Science Journalism Fund. It's a podcast about disruptive technology, specifically new food technologies like lab-grown meat, vat-grown milk and plant-based proteins, the so-called meatless meats you might already be seeing pop up on your supermarket shelves and in advertisements like this one. We've got chicken or beef? I think I'll take the beef. Give it a go, eh? Yeah, give it a go. Tell us what you think. It's absolutely delicious. Tender? It's actually really good. Do you know what? That's 100% plant-based. That's crazy. <laughs> No meat in there whatsoever. It does taste like chicken. Instead of looking at the details of how these technologies work, we're going to look at their potential effects on New Zealand and what our options are to deal with those effects. So, what could those effects be? Let's start with a potential worst-case scenario. And yes, this is highly hypothetical. It's the year 2020-something. There's been a revolutionary technological breakthrough. But we start now with some uh, breaking news. Reports are coming in. We are continuing to follow this breaking news. A company overseas has found a way to make a liquid that's chemically indistinguishable from cow's milk, and they can make it for much cheaper than the natural stuff. As more and more of these new milk factories come online, demand for New Zealand dairy starts to dry up. The commodity price of milk plummets and farmers simply can't turn a profit out of dairy farming anymore. Some farmers figure if you can't beat them, join them and start growing the high-protein vegetable crops like soy and sunflowers which are used to make this new milk. But overseas farms with their government subsidies, vast areas of cheap flat land and closer proximity to markets are difficult competition. And then, just as millions of surplus cows are sent to slaughter, a cheap new meat product grown in labs hits the market. Now the meat industry is in dire straits too. Many farmers can't make it. Tens of millions of dollars in assets, milking sheds, irrigation systems, freezing works become all but worthless. Blood runs in the streets, zombies rise from the grave, hunting human brains, rivers catch fire. You get the picture. Again, it's a worst case scenario, and there are lots of reasons to think it might never happen. But there are also some reasons to think it could. You've probably already seen stories like this in the news media recently. Professor Mark Post believes cultured beef could save the world's food crisis, massively improve animal welfare. From one tiny piece of tissue can come 20,000 kilos of beef. We are scaling up production um, and we are getting rid of some of the animal products. It's hard to foresee what's going to happen in the future, but I think we are seeing a, 
the perfect storm around um, science, technology, and consumer demand around uh, more environmentally sustainable products that suddenly makes this way of growing food hit a lot of buttons for people in a way that uh, alternatives haven't in the past. So the potential for significant disruption, I think, is there. How quickly that will play out is, I guess, yet to be seen. That's Steve Carden, the chief executive of Landcorp, the government-owned company which is New Zealand's biggest farmer. Among the biggest changes he and others see coming is in the price of these new food products. Here's Dr Rosie Bosworth, a food technology futurist. Their goal is to come in at some point and and compete on price and indeed undercut those commodity prices. Though, like with any new technology, whether they come in and enter the market um, price competitive will be another thing. Um, they may, they may like all new products, um, come in at a price premium. And then as they scale and, and get more partnerships on board and consumer adoption um, rises, then those costs will continue to, to drop. Do you think they'll get there eventually, though? Oh, yes. There's, there's no doubt about that. It's just a matter of when, not if. One of the big companies or startups in the space that are producing um, what we call cellular agriculturally produced meat, Memphis Meats, they intend to be on the market in 2018. That's next year. And Memphis Meats aims to be in, in, you know, at price parity or actually below price parity um, in mainstream supermarkets by 2021. So that's, that's not far away. Of course, not everyone agrees that the rise of these new products is inevitable. Fonterra, for one, is betting against them. Milk from cows provides a natural and complex mixture of proteins, fats, minerals and other nutrients, which will be almost impossible to manufacture. So there will always be a global growing market for dairy. And even if Fonterra is wrong and these products are technically feasible, there are big questions about whether large numbers of consumers will actually want to drink milkless milk or eat meatless meat. But if you ask Angus Robson, that isn't the real threat. Angus is a Waikato-based engineer who sits on the environmental steering group for Landcorp, and he's deeply concerned about these new technologies. For me as a concerned citizen of the country, I've, I've put it on about a 9 out of 10. I don't think I've seen anything bigger um, or with the potential to overturn things heavier than what this is. I think what is easy to think is I would never buy artificial milk or meat because of an ick factor or, or whatever. But the consumer like you or I isn't the market for a lot of this stuff. Um, it's the ingredients manufacturer. And we don't ourselves have a real much of a say in what the ingredients are. So if, if, for example, a chocolate maker wants to substitute New Zealand milk powder, which costs them 3000 a tonne, for artificial milk powder, which may cost him 2000 or even 1500 a tonne, we would never know. But it makes an enormous difference to whether or not we can sell our milk powder or not. We've already seen something like this happen for genetic modification. Lots of consumers have some degree of concern about GMO food and might not be willing to buy, for example, a genetically modified carrot. But a lot of those same consumers still happily eat processed food products with GMO ingredients. It seems that so long as there's some distance in the production chain, we're willing to let that ick factor slide. 
The obvious response then is for our farmers to focus on products where that ick factor around synthetic or artificial food is likely to be strong. Federated Farmers Vice President Andrew Hoggard, who's a Waikato-based dairy farmer, says the strategy in that area is already well underway. You know, there's still going to be a demand for the real stuff. People will still want the real stuff, like there is at the moment a demand for organics. Science-wise... Um, there is no papers around the world that show that organic is better for you. And yet you've still got a huge amount of people who believe that organic is better for them. To my mind, you know, New Zealand's in a good position where we kind of lead the way in terms of carbon efficiency for our cows compared to the rest of the world, world-leading animal welfare regulations. So there's a lot of things we're already sort of ahead of the curve on we definitely need to get better at all of them, but you know, it might be where we, we become the world's niche provider. The meat industry has very similar concerns about increasingly cheap alternative products, and just like the dairy industry, they're looking at pursuing the premium end of the market as the way forward. In fact, Beef and Lamb New Zealand CEO Sam McIver says his organisation has commissioned an extensive report on how it can respond to the rise of products like plant-based protein and lab-grown meat. We're in the midst at the moment of building a red meat story for New Zealand and and as we've done this international research we've benchmarked ourselves against other brands other country brands from around the world and and we believe in terms of naturally produced product there is nobody that can genuinely meet us in that space. To give you an example um, grass-fed you know every country around the world is trying to build a grass-fed brand. And, and I, was in the, I was in the US when Ireland launched their grass-fed sort of standard. And they said, well, our grass-fed is that these animals can be on grass six, seven or eight months a year. And you're sort of going, well, that's not a genuine, uh, authentic grass-fed story. You know, that's a bit of greenwashing to a certain extent. You know, we, we are the people that can genuinely give that promise and and the real naturally raised um, product. So this is plan A. Focus on the segments of the market who want good old-fashioned meat and dairy and promote our products as natural, animal-friendly and sustainable. It's an approach with widespread endorsement, including from the new Agriculture Minister, Damien O'Connor. In the end, it will be a lower impact, possibly from plant-based alternatives or alternative proteins, versus the natural product that you have from a organic or pastoral-based system. And I think in the end, um, we should have, you know, huge opportunities. You know, we can only feed 40 million people. There are more than 40 million people in the world who want to connect to what has been, you know, uh, a natural process through thousands and thousands of years of, of consuming protein in a way that's that's helped us develop as humans. Um, the alternatives, and, and you don't have to go back too far to look at margarine versus butter. You know, va- margarine was put up as you know the, the healthy alternative for many, many years, but we've seen emerging wisdom around actually the, the non-processed butter being a better source of fat and 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 um, and goodness than the highly processed margarine product. But pursuing the premium market isn't a silver bullet solution. For one thing, Angus Robson has big questions about competition. I think anybody contemplating the future would say straight away, yes, let's go premium. But 
we're not talking about a New Zealand disruption. We're talking about a worldwide disruption. Everybody that produces milk will be facing the same issues. So Ireland, Denmark, France, USA. And their farmers will go, oh, well, we'll go premium. And there's only so much market for premium. If we went crazy premium and we were very successful at it, yeah, we might get some more, so long as not too many other people tried it. But I still don't see that substituting for 90% of the other that we're doing. Another issue, says Keith Woodford, who's an honorary professor of agri-food systems at Lincoln University, is that we risk over-hyping the level of demand for some of these premium products. The grass-fed beef tends to have its own characteristics, but trying to actually market those to consumers is, a, is another thing altogether. Now, you go to Japan and you look at the premiums they will pay for the Wagyu cattle, huge premiums. And then you come down and you look at the American feedlot beef, that's quite a lot cheaper. And then you look at um, grass-fed beef and that's um, further down again. So I think the story with grass-fed, it's one of those classic ones where that is our strength, but then we just assume that consumers elsewhere will recognise that the grass-fed beef is better. And in practice, it just doesn't always work that way. And Rosie Bosworth says it's dangerous for us to assume new technologies won't be able to compete at the premium end of the market. Let's look at who buys alternative milks already versus traditional milk at some millennials. As the baby boomers and those older start to uh, you know, <laughs> pop off the vine, it is the millennials that will be um, wanting to buy milk or, or milk-like products and... Is there really going to be a demand for traditional New Zealand milk when there will be a plethora of alternatives, of high-quality plant-based products, of price-competitive synthetic milk made locally, um, tailored to their needs as as is regular milk is, but perhaps even further, um, you you can um, start to play around with all sorts of food technologies that can really customise that milk for the end consumer, lactose-free, cholesterol-free, added whatever vitamins you like, just like we have with milk. But synthetically, why would these this massively important consumer group of millennials um, then choose to buy a, a, a creamy dairy milk from New Zealand um, when they have these options? Another really big challenge faced by the premium model has nothing to do with branding. It's that in order to turn a profit on their premium meat and dairy, producers still need to sell a lot of non-premium product. Here's business journalist Rod Oram to explain. The way the dairy industry or the meat industry works, they bring into their processing system um, large quantities of raw material, you know, liquid milk or a whole animal, the very substantial part of the economics then um, is trying to make um, some money out of as much as they can of those raw materials. Um, and if you like, the premium bit is the icing on the cake to mix one's food metaphors. Um, and you couldn't possibly afford to farm cattle for meat or 
or sheep for meat um, if you were only going to be selling some exquisite um, part of that animal. You, you've got to sell the rest, otherwise you, you just can't, can't play the, make the money. And the same applies to the dairy industry as well. I mean, even if you look at um, the premium product, which has perhaps the big, which obviously has the biggest volume, which is infant formula, you're still taking only a small part of that milk to get the parts you want. Conversely, these new technologies have no residual raw material. They, they're only using what they then turn into a food product or that can be recycled. It is fundamentally a whole a, a different process, a manufacturing process, which has huge efficiencies um, of scale, um, but huge efficiencies through um, minimum, if any, um, waste material. I would have loved to ask Fonterra whether they have a plan to deal with this potential challenge to the premium side of their business. Unfortunately, they failed to respond to several interview requests. So instead, I put the question to Beef and Lamb New Zealand's Sam McIver, who says the solution is to drastically increase the proportion of a carcass that has premium value. If we talk about you know other parts of the animal, whether it's the hooves or whether it's the bones, there are, there are all sorts of beneficial products that can come out of those bones if we, if we talk about uh, blood plasma, for example, out of New Zealand. So we, New Zealand is essentially the, the most disease-free country in the world. And so because of that, um, our blood plasma can be put to really good medical uses for people. So, so I think part of as much as our thrust will be around saying, actually, we need to ensure that people have a meat product that they love and enjoy and feel good about eating, there will be those other aspects of the carcass that we'll continue to work on, develop products out of, and and make sure that those are products that benefit the world. But what about the low-grade meat, the stuff that's too tough or tasteless to sell at a premium price and which usually goes into hamburgers and sausages? Funnily enough, I actually used to work at a meat processing factory for someone who might have an answer to that question. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Eric. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Are you all right to have a bit of a chat about this um, meat thing? Yeah, sure. Cool, cool. This is Eric Hunt. He's the dad of one of my best mates from school. He sold up his factory in Hamilton where I used to work a few years ago, but he still works part-time as a food technology consultant. These days he's very interested in pet food. It's getting harder and harder and harder to get the raw material, which is all the off-cuts and offals from the carcass. Now, say 10 years ago, a lot of it was just getting turned into rendering, so it was just waste. Now, um, as... Uh, more is known about pet nutrition and the fact that you need a lot of collagen and connective tissue for glucosamine and chondroitin. The price of all of the product that used to be waste is just going up and up and up. And the pet food in countries like Japan and America, they're paying up to $100 a kilo for it. And the background of that is really that a lot of people are choosing not to have children anymore and their pets have become that focus, and they're um, humanising them. So uh, they'll actually spend more on uh, food for their pets than they would food for their children. And there's also a question of authenticity. There's a lot of people out there that want what is authentic. So 
some people just wouldn't go for plant-based and they would probably boycott any place that was selling it. So maybe this is a way through. If our low-grade meat faces stiff competition from new food technologies, maybe we could feed it to our pets rather than to ourselves. Rosie Bosworth isn't convinced. There's people who are now making plant-based pet foods and all sorts. If we reach a scenario when it's no longer cost-competitive to grow cows, that's going to be a very expensive meat for pet food. It may end up being not not a, um, a particularly attractive business model going forward. But who knows, perhaps the paleo market and the CrossFit market could take the world by storm and everybody wants that, that con- connective tissue and the bone broth and all sorts, and that may help see kiwi farmers through, but I, I wouldn't be banking on that. We could go back and forth arguing whether the strategy of pursuing premium meat and dairy products will work. But for now, let's just consider it plan A and move on to talk about plan B. The thought has probably already crossed your mind. If this plant-based protein is the way of the future, why can't we get in on the action? Keith Woodford says the problem is the kind of plants these proteins are based on. There's no way we can produce products such as wheat or sunflowers or any of the broadacre crops at a competitive price relative to, for example, the United States. The reason that pastoral agriculture works so well is because it rains so much in New Zealand. We have such a bountiful rainfall and that makes the grass grow for much of the year. But when you come to grow cereal crops in New Zealand, it's actually expensive. We often have to dry the crops. We have trouble with wet periods, with diseases as a result of that in the crops. And we would really struggle compared to much of Europe and much of the United States if we were trying to compete on a cost basis in relation to many of these plant proteins. Now, that doesn't mean to say we can't find some, and as I say, I'm part of a group. We are actually looking for such opportunities. And Keith Woodford isn't alone in looking for opportunities in New Zealand for plant-based products. This is the sound of 80 or so innovators, business people and scientists gathered in a very sweaty and somewhat unventilated room at Lincoln University. It's an event called Feed the World 2030, the Power of Plants Hackathon. So it is getting people together to stop and say, where is New Zealand's play in the plant-based protein area, plant um, uh, future foods, and what do we need to do to make sure we're well prepared, we move towards it, and we can capture the value. That's Sue Suckling, the chair of Lincoln Hub and Callaghan Innovation, both sponsors of the event in which 13 teams are developing and pitching ideas in the plant food arena. One of the teams I spoke to at this event were investigating a 40-year-old technology for processing leafy plants like lucerne and separating out the protein, sugar and fibre. Rob McDonald is the man behind that technology. He's a scientist who just recently retired from the government-run research agency Plant and Food. Somebody just said by accident that there was this hackathon thing on plant proteins. And I thought, well, that's what I'm 
doing unofficially. <laughs> uh, it'd be really nice to meet an audience which was really interested in that. And so I accidentally came along, <laughs> and it's been fabulous. You tripped over yourself and fell into a group uh, of entrepreneurs. And yeah, well described. <laughs> At the time Rob was investigating this technology in the 1970s, the focus was on getting the sugar out of the plants and converting it into biofuel. This was at the height of the oil shocks and fuel rationing. But now his idea is to focus on the protein which can be extracted from plant leaf. If all goes to plan, you could convert that protein into so-called synthetic meat, you could feed the fibre from the leaf to livestock as a cheap supplement, and use the sugar as a biofuel to run the processing factories. Understandably, it's an idea that other members of Rob's team, like Paul McGuill, who works for Landcorp, are very excited about. Paul says the most exciting part of the technology is the plants it's based on, chiefly lucerne and red clover. Those two plants are legumes, for one, so you don't need to use nitrogen fertiliser, which is a very energy-intensive product to make, and it basically uses either coal or natural gas, so we don't need that. Um, and it's a perennial, so that means you know when we're competing against other plant-based proteins, it's generally in annual crops like soy, uh, sugarcane, corn, wheat, barley. So if you can use a legume and you can u- make it perennial, then you're, uh, you're in a pretty good space. And the other big advantage of red clover and lucerne, unlike the big cereal crops, they grow really well in New Zealand. You know, we already grow really good um, pastoral forages, um, so whether that is lucerne or red clover or whatever it might be in the future, we do that well in the temperate climate, which there's not many uh, good places that do that. So we've got that. Um, We're a GMO-free, and there's plenty of New Zealand customers actually that need a little tweak, they just need a couple more things on their story to tell a good New Zealand story. So one, Aura King Salmon, you know, they've got a really good product there, they have a really good um, integrated supply chain, but they're still requiring, you know, to use imported feed. So if we could use even this product, some of the omega-3s out, some of the proteins, give them a fish food that's New Zealand source, GMO-free, that just adds to their story. So is this pasture-based protein idea our saviour? Possibly not, but Angus Robson says there's value in pursuing these ideas, even if they fail. My business has been thinking up things and patenting them and developing them and selling them overseas. And I know that if you are deep into the development side of things, then you will always see um, areas to uh, get patents and preserve your IP and then sell it all over the world and keep the others out. At these early stages of any game, there's a lot of IP on the table, uh, you know, intellectual property, a lot of peripheral stuff that we haven't yet seen what it is yet. But if we dive in, we will see those opportunities. Can you give some examples of what kind of things you're talking about there? Well, for example, when the um, cell phone came in, There were the handset makers, of course, but they also needed all of the servers. They needed the satellites. They needed the transmission towers. Uh, That's all what I'd call peripheral. So when you see a new handset, it doesn't mean that you have to be a handset maker. You can say, right, I'm going to be a cell phone tower maker or a switching gear maker. It's funny because Nokia did something like this. When the smartphones came along and wiped them out in the cell phone arena, um, they switched to becoming a mobile infrastructure company. Yeah, perfect example. There was a country that 
grew on the back of a huge single industry. Like, no one had really heard of Finland until Nokia, and then Nokia was Finland. Their story about cell phone penetration into the world is not a lot different to New Zealand's agricultural penetration into the world. But then they had an existential threat from uh, smartphones. They didn't survive the handset part of the business, but as you say, they found alternatives, and here we are. And I think that's the situation we're in here. Now, that's not to say there's no risk. It's okay for Bill Gates or Elon Musk to invest millions into these high-risk food tech startups. They've got plenty of cash to fall back on if these companies fail to deliver. Farmers can't afford losses on that kind of scale. So the obvious response is for them to hedge their bets, to diversify their farm, so that if one idea fails, it's not a total loss. But Federated Farmers Vice President Andrew Hoggard says it's not that simple. The challenge comes where if you try and diversify too much you become, I don't know what the term is, master of everything, expert at nothing, something yeah, like that. Jack of all trades, master yeah, of none. Yeah, and suddenly you lose some of your efficiencies in terms of being able to do the job well, the primary job well. Years ago we had a runoff up in the hills. Um, we had a few flat paddocks there, which were enough for our heifers, but we also had a whole lot of hills, so we put some sheep in there, um, thinking, oh, yeah, know how to farm cows, we can farm sheep as well but uh, yeah very tr- different animal you've got to have different knowledge different skills and it takes a while to learn that and you know I've still got the five inch scar on my arm from attempting to um, shear a sheep um, which I'll never do again so yeah and I guess the the other thing is the the equipment you need so if you're going to have an orchard operation there, there's all the specialist picking equipment tree trimming all the rest of it you know, if you've only got a little piece, it doesn't make economic sense to have that. Landcorp CEO Steve Carden has the luxury of operating on a lot of farms, which means it's easy to diversify and share knowledge and equipment across those farms. But he says there are ways of smaller operators doing the same thing. Yeah, it is hard to do. I mean, one of the advantages we have across 125 farms is that we can invest and innovate and try new things without breaking the company. Much harder if you're a 300 cow private dairy farmer. So I think what we need to be doing as an industry is sharing insights across the industry, as we do already, um, about what works and what isn't working, and allow people to um, experiment collectively in areas and try new things without putting individual farms at risk in doing so. We need to start thinking more uh, laterally about how we think about farm and land configuration and having clusters of farms uh, perform different roles collectively collectively. and work together rather than individual farms standing as standalone entities. So you might have a farm that's focused on cropping, which works collectively with the farm next door, which is very much focused on milk production, and they work cohesively with the runoff from that farm around a horticulture program, and it's a, a collaborative unit of farms working together rather than individual farms trying to do everything on their own. And that's just going to take the industry you know, some time to figure out how we can make those new farm systems work, but we have to break existing models that we have around farming for this to happen. Of course, there's another multi-million dollar elephant in the room. You can't bet on anything without money. Alison Jews is an agribusiness consultant, and her job involves looking at a lot of farmers' balance sheets. Making changes from where you're at, say an irrigated dairy farm in Canterbury, to something else is going to be seen as risky. And of course, if you already have a lot of debt and New Zealand dairy land is some of the most indebted in the world and then you're going to add to that 
to head down a pathway of a slightly different industry without support for that industry, then the banks are not going to like it and probably not going to support you because it's going to be seen as double risk because you're going to change a system where you already have very high debt. So that's double dipping into into the high risk zone and banks don't like risk. Do you think that they perhaps need a change of attitude to realise that, you know, the current situation is also quite risky? I don't know if it's a change of attitude or it's just a wake-up, really. You know, the banking industry, again, doesn't like risk, um, and they're still trying to encourage farmers to continue with the old patterns, which is still um, more output metrics that they challenge their farmers with. It is like about, you know, relating debt to cow numbers and milk solids production, but in reality... Our security moving forward is going to be is going to lie in our ability to be resilient in the face of a whole lot of challenges, and that's these disruptive protein threats, climatic volatility, tightening resource constraints, water clawback, farming scrutiny, loss of social license. All those things are, are really three to five years away from really hitting us, and unless banks support people to change. Um, we're going to see attrition out of our farming sector, for sure. Banks are quick to point out the degree to which they support farmers through tough times, and that's not all spin. Many farmers were only able to survive the latest downturn in milk prices thanks to bank loans. But Massey University banking expert Dr Claire Matthews says the response might not be the same if these new disruptive food technologies take off in a big way. The reality is that the banks will help customers that are going through difficult times if they see a light at the end of the tunnel. So if they believe that providing you with assistance will help you get out the other end and be in a position to repay them, then yes, they will be of assistance. If they don't see light at the end of the tunnel and think that assisting you is simply throwing good money after bad, then they're not going to do so. And is sort of technological disruption any different in sort of the bank's consideration to, you know, normal volatility and commodities markets and things like that? I guess it would be to some extent that disruption would be seen, technological disruption would be seen, seen slightly differently because there's a lot more uncertainty. Volatility around commodity markets is uncertain by its very nature, but there's a known uncertainty, if that makes sense. Technological disruption is much less certain. Technological disruption is a step change in something, and you're never going to go back to where it was. Whatever, Wherever you go to in the future is going to be influenced by that disruption. So, quick side note. I spoke to lots of people in the making of this podcast and they had all kinds of opinions about how we should respond to these disruptive technologies in the agricultural sector or even if those technologies were likely to pan out. But the one thing everyone I asked agreed on is that reducing debt is an essential part of this. What's supposed to happen is when, the say, the dairy sector is having a bit of a downturn, then the banks lend the farmers money to get them through. And then when they go into an upturn and things are going really well, then the bank, the farmers are supposed to repay that, get themselves into a good place so that when the next downturn hits, they're in a position to borrow more money. My perception, which may not be accurate, but everything I see points to this, is that in the downtimes, absolutely the banks lend some more money and the farmers get into a bit more debt. But when the good times come, instead of paying those loans back and getting themselves prepared for the next downturn, farmers seem to think, wow, this is fantastic, and they're out there um, buying 
you know, buying additional land, buying uh, livestock, buying uh, equipment. And I just don't see the evidence that they are actually financially doing what they should be, which is repaying their debt. Okay. So now we're going to talk about the worst of the worst case scenarios. What happens if consumers switch en masse to these new plant-based or lab-grown products? What happens if New Zealand farmers, for whatever reason, just aren't able to compete in this new world? What if Plan A and Plan B both fail? It's a cliché to say this, but agriculture is the backbone of our economy. What do we do if our backbone breaks? Here's Rod Orham. There's a number of big components to that. The first one is the primary sector overall is only about 12% of GDP, even if you look at second-order effects, employment in rural towns, you know, servicing that. You could sort of see how we could manage just in pure GDP terms. However, there would be an employment impact, um, and so we would need to do some very impressive regional economic development, which is one of the hardest areas of economic development to do, to create new jobs in other fields for um, people in those areas affected. The third area, though, is a lot more complicated, and that's the um, high proportion of primary sector exports as a percentage of all our exports. We would really need to um, push incredibly hard to um, make sure that we replace any decline in the primary sector exports with other exports from other areas. Of all the developed countries in the world, we are most dependent on agriculture for exports and and a big proportion of GDP. Um, No other developed country would be facing um, quite the same challenges that we would be. I asked Dr Claire Matthews what the banks would do if lending to the rural sector became too risky. To to a large extent, it depends how quickly it happens. And the reality is it's not going to happen overnight. Dairy farms will lose value and there'll be fewer dairy cows around. And so there'll be a pulling back. So initially, that's likely to be slightly slow, would be my guess. And then there'll be the sudden step change. But then you're going to have this land and it's going to have to be used for something. So there's going to be an opportunity and that will create something new that banks can potentially lend for. Um, so it may create opportunities for sectors that have been less desirable in that the banks might say, well, we haven't got this really desirable sector in terms of rural because rural does tend to be quite desirable. We haven't got this sector anymore, so maybe we have to look somewhere else. And so other sectors that the banks have said, nah, we've got rural, so we'll go there instead. Well, we can't go to rural, so let's have a look at something else. So clearly, one of the most important things for New Zealand surviving this hypothetical post-agriculture world is to build up new industries for the banks to invest in, to prop up our exports and keep people employed. How to do that is Far too big of a question to answer in this podcast, Um, but I wanted to share a couple of potential possibilities which were raised with me. Because if we can't use our land for farming as we know it, we'll need to find something else to do with it. 
I'd like to think there would be a market for ecosystem services. In essence, we're already doing that with, for example, um, planting trees to absorb carbon. If we got really, really serious about the environmental impact of cities, um, if we were going to build um, a new subdivision and we understood what the ecological impact of that subdivision is, then the builder of that subdivision would ideally want to or need to buy offsets elsewhere where the ecosystem is is recovering um, and therefore the extra good coming out of that recovery um, offsets the damage done um, with that piece of urbanization now that's a that's a very far flung thought out there about how this might work but land is important the natural ecosystem is fundamentally important and um, so even if we um, use less of that land for food, which seems to be the way we're going, that natural ecosystem is going to have a greater and greater value. Um, the more urbanised we become, the more we're trying to um, pull back on climate change and other areas of deep sustainability. So still owning land in some way um, and, and owning a chunk of that ecosystem, I think will have great long-term value. But it's just quite hard at the moment to be able to be articulate about how that looks. As well as land, the other big resource we'll have to find a use for if we no longer use it for pasture is water. And Alison Jews points out it's possible that we could make more money from that water if we weren't using it for pasture anymore. I mean, if you think about a irrigated dairy farm in Canterbury, it would use about 5.5 million litres of water per hectare to generate 20,000 litres of milk. 15 to oh, 1,600 kilos of milk solids a hectare, which is about 700 or so kilos of protein per hectare, and it's taking 5.5 million litres, in some cases of pure water, to do that. Now, I could go to the supermarket, and I think I could probably buy a litre of water for $3 or $2.99. I can go and buy milk for $1.50. I know it's a crude assumption, but you know we have to look at how we're using things and what we're getting. Just before we finish, I want to acknowledge that in this last section we've been talking about New Zealand farming a little bit like it's just numbers on a spreadsheet to be balanced out. Obviously it's much more than that. It's one of the cornerstones of what New Zealand is. It's part of our culture. And if we do face a worst-case scenario from these new technologies, lots of people have told me that that culture might be one of our biggest assets. You know, New Zealand farmers, because we've, for the last, since 84, you know, we've had very little in the way of government support compared to other farmers around the world. I think it's what gives me hope is that we're most used to handling change and fluctuations. And I think, you know, if this comes about, you know, I, th I sense there's some opportunities in there as well. You know, I, some of my counterparts overseas... Um, yeah, I don't see them handling all this too well. I actually see it sort of taking them potentially out of the play as competitors and perhaps opening up a few opportunities for us. And so I'm a bit lucky because I do mix with switched on farmers and the switched on farmers, but maybe that's a lot of our farmers, I think. When they sit down and have this conversation, they know it's coming, they're worried about it, they're genuinely wanting to do things in groups of farmers and uh, often in small sub-catchments trying to work together and, and think together around this. They know that change is coming, they know they have to diversify and differentiate, and they know that they've got to get more resilience. 
our guys have lived on the raw edge for a long time and I think many of them are pretty adaptable. Uh, I'm also very encouraged by the strength of the women in the industry, not just in practical things but in mental strength and uh, mental abilities and I think that if there's an adaptation to be made they won't all still be farmers but they will still be very valuable citizens who, who could be responsible for building the new. If you want to hear more about the way science is changing our lives, go to the RNZ website and subscribe to Our Changing World. You can also find it on any of your podcasting apps by searching for Our Changing World. And of course, RNZ has lots of other great podcasts you might want to listen to and subscribe to. One of them is Pants on Fire, a series all about how and why people lie. It looks at everything from online dating scams to politicians to lies in advertising and fiction. This special episode of Our Changing World received funding from the Aotearoa New Zealand Science Journalism Fund. It was presented and produced by me, William Ray, and it was engineered by Mark Chesterman. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.